According to provisional data, there were more than 107,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States in 2021, most of which involved opioids. Barriers at multiple levels prevent many people with opioid use disorder from obtaining treatment, including medication for opioid use disorder. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Rahul Gupta, Director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Dr. Gupta has co-authored a prospective article about strategies for increasing access to medication for opioid use disorder. Dr. Gupta, roughly how many people in the United States have opioid use disorder and what proportion of them are actually receiving treatment? We believe that there is a tremendous higher amount of people that do have it, almost about 8 million people that are above the age of 12 years. And we believe that only less than 5% of those individuals are able to get treatment for opioid use disorder today as it stands. So you say in your perspective article that medication for opioid use disorder is one of the most effective interventions that we have. What types of medication fall into this category and how much evidence is there to support their use? Well, certainly we know that as part of the national drug control strategy, we've looked at what are the biggest drivers of the current opioid and drug overdose and poisoning epidemic. And we looked at that as two large drivers. One is untreated addiction, the other is drug trafficking. So when we focus on medications, especially the FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder, they include methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Now, we know that when we use these medications, we have people much less likely, in fact, 82% less likely to die from an overdose. And in addition to that, there's so many other benefits of using these drugs to treat people. That includes not use of illicit opioids. It includes improvement in cravings, but also improves people's quality of life. We also know that people are often at higher risk for HIV and hepatitis C infection transmissions, which can be not only expensive diseases, in addition to being life-threatening diseases and difficult to treat lifelong. So it affects and improves the risk of transmission of diseases, but also have ultimately improved outcomes. So there's tremendous amounts of benefit, including cost to the healthcare system and utilization, as well as justice system of using medications for opioid use disorder. And then what are the primary barriers that are impeding people's access to these medications? Well, there's several. One of the things that we are struck by and continue for me as a physician to be struck by is clearly the barriers to prescribing. The president has talked about it in the State of the Union about how we need to remove the barriers from prevent clinicians. Myself as an ex-favored physician, that was one of the biggest driving factors for me to obtain an ex-favor so we can help people and my patients, my own patients in primary care. We also think in addition to the education and infrastructure development for addiction treatment framework, as well as prescribing barriers, we also have access issues. Far too many Americans aren't able to access because of whether they're living in rural areas, underserved areas, or behind the walls, incarcerated populations. And then social determinants of health are really critical, both in accessing, but also in maintenance of treatment. Things like food insecurity, homelessness, income inequality, discrimination, all of these aspects become important in addition to stigma that form a compendium of the challenge that we see now that a fraction of people that need to get the treatment are able to actually obtain it. 
And what steps are your office or other federal departments taking to increase the number of people who actually have access to these medications? One of the important things for us has been, and for me and the president, has been to make sure that we not only increase the amount from less than 5% access to universal access to treatment by 2025, but we're taking very specific and defined steps. First, we want to bolster the addiction treatment and education infrastructure. That includes making sure that there is more medication curricula that is focused on addiction and mental health. It's critically important, and we're resourcing some of those needs towards the healthcare profession per se. We also want to make sure, secondly, that there's increased access to prescriptions for MOUD or medications for opioid use disorders in clinical as well as community-based programs because what we call the low-threshold buprenorphine programs to often integrated in like syringe service programs. This is a harm reduction approach and allowing people to, for us to be, meet them where they are and integrate this low threshold level of buprenorphine where people don't have requirement for physical presence with psychosocial counseling as well, don't have requirement to be showing up in a particular place at a particular time, meaning flexible scheduling. Those type of things are really important to get people initiated on drugs like buprenorphine. And then we're also making sure that the great enhancements and improvements that we have made during the pandemic, the telehealth provisions, those become permanent because it's critical that we provide people the certainty of making some of these telehealth improvements for long term. And then when we talk about people behind the walls, as we know, more than two thirds of people behind the walls today in America have a diagnosis of at least one SUD. And those people oftentimes are at a higher risk of overdose deaths when they're released or recidivism into the community. Either way you look at it, it is of extremely high cost and literally a, not a smart way to treat people, an expensive way at such. So what we're trying to do and are committed is to increase and have universal access, especially to Federal Bureau of Prisons and increase access by 50% by 2025 to all state prisons and local jails. We know when we do that, it will save people's lives, will get people to not have recidivism back into the justice system, and we will improve the economy and health of individuals. The last couple of things are also important. One is to address the social determinants oftentimes, because what we see is that when we treat people and they go back to their communities under the same circumstances and challenges, then there's a higher likelihood of not continuing to remain on maintenance doses. What that means is that we must also understand that the work continues to be on aspects of food insecurity, housing instability, discrimination, as well as income inequality. It's become important because we must change the environment also and impact it positively for people being treated. And lastly, I'll say this, we've got to use patient-first terminology. For too long, stigma has manifested itself both in healthcare, healthcare systems, and institutions at a structural level, at a community level, but also people internalize stigma and feel shame in the seeking treatment. So one of the things we're doing is the president's budget now is asking to change the names of government institutions themselves. For example, we want to change NIDA or National Institute on Drug Abuse to National Institute on Diseases of Addiction. So we want to use patient-first terminology and we, we are starting with making sure that we are looking at changing the language that we speak of as an example of why this is so critical and important.
So finally, moving away from these government and national policy aspects of the issue, what can individual clinicians and healthcare systems do to increase treatment rates among their patients? Well, that's a very important question because what we have seen, even when we now we're allowing a lot many more physicians and clinicians to not need the X favor, we still have opportunity to have more clinicians begin prescribing medications for opioid use disorders. So what we need clinicians to consider is have patients that may be needing screening for both concurring substance use disorder as well as mental health be screened and be able to provide those medications that are now available through telehealth, through expanded ability for prescriptions, and also evaluate the systems of care that exist currently within your office, your practice, but also in the larger setting and determinants of health for your patients as well. The success of the national strategy will ultimately depend on the ability, willingness, and the actions by individual providers in communities to act with compassion, act with a sense of urgency, and make sure that we're doing the most we can to save lives and get people into treatment. It's a very critical element for addressing the drug overdose and poisoning crisis across our country. Thank you, Dr. Gupta.